35 miles off Chicago, we were struck by a southwester which turned us around, regardless of the engine. And we tried several times to bring her back up into the wind, but she wouldn't go. The rudder didn't seem to have any control of it whatsoever. And it was too rough for her to even think they were going to live. Captain Charlie Cox and engineer Fred Kirkbride were caught in a November gale aboard a uniquely shaped freighter called a whaleback. Spun like a top just a few miles from their destination in Chicago, the crew of the Henry Court were in for the ride of their lives. Here are their stories in this edition of Shipwreckpodcast.com. I'm Rick Mixter. Shipwreckpodcast.com contains actual interviews from shipwreck survivors on the Great Lakes. All of this audio is copyright, airworthy productions, and may not be duplicated or used in any other form without written permission. This is an eyewitness account of the loss of the whaleback steamer Henry Court, lost on Lake Michigan in 1934. Alexander McDougall took his years of sailing experience to develop a lake freighter that would be unlike anything else. Rounded like a cigar and flat on the bottom, with turrets on each end, he would claim his whalebacks were unsinkable, but in reality, over half of his inventions would end up on the bottom of the ocean and in four of the Great Lakes. When a relatively new rail line heard of the unique ships, the Sioux Line asked McDougall to add a mid-deck on his next two steamers so they could ship merchandise more effectively. The two new ships would be the only whalebacks launched with side hatches to access that mid-deck and the ships would be named for two of the major investors of the rail line, Charles Pillsbury and William Washburn. Pillsbury would have its 320-foot keel laid down on January 4, 1892 in Superior, Wisconsin. Just months later, the Pillsbury splashed into the slip, ready for fit-out after launch on June 25th. Use as a package steamer didn't last long, especially after a lawsuit claimed McDougall's boats were about 200 tons shy of what he had promised they could haul. The boats were transferred to the Bessemer fleet and renamed with an Iron Age innovator's name as per their tradition. Washburn became James Beaumont Nielsen after the Scottish inventor who used hot air in blast furnaces, allowing for cheaper raw coal to be used to create metal. The Pillsbury became the Henry Court, for the English inventor of the puddling process, which used pig iron to create wrought iron. The steamer court was gutted inside to haul more iron ore and coal, and it was quickly apparent that the 1400 horsepower triple expansion steam engine combined with a rounded bow made for a fantastic icebreaker. So the court and Nielsen were often the first boats to open the season. That winter abuse sank the court at least three times in her career, with the first being a December run near where the Detroit River spills into Lake Erie. After breaking out several ships, the court turned into the path of the 600-foot midvale and was cut amidships. The ship sank in 35 feet of water, the crew barely making it off the ship to a passing car ferry before the steamer disappeared into the icy abyss. Salvers returned to the spot that next spring, but were surprised that it was nowhere to be found. U.S. surveyors dragged lines for five miles and found the whaleback near the shipping lanes. Just seven feet below the water's surface, it would have caused another wreck if it hadn't been pumped out and removed. 
Rebuilt at Toledo and sailing for Pittsburgh Steamship, the court's profile was dramatically changed with the addition of two whirly cranes on deck. The whaleback continued its tradition of opening the season using its pig-nosed snout to ride up on the ice until the weight of the freighter broke a path for others to follow. In the spring of 1927, Court was again stranded after breaking ice off Colchester Reef in Lake Erie. Pittsburgh's fleet was expanding with massive new freighters, and the need for the smaller Court was only apparent for icebreaking, so the company looked at selling its whalebacks as far back as 1904. They finally found a buyer in a new company in Detroit called Lakeport Shipping and Navigation. Its president was the former general manager of Solvay Process Company and a popular businessman in Detroit. Andrew H. Green Jr. had become infamous for an investigation into Detroit's aldermen and even toyed with the idea of being mayor himself. But by the spring of 1927, he was more focused on finding work for the court. The second engineer of the court, Fred Kirkbride, said the ship's owner was quite a character. You know, Mr. Green was quite a... He was an eccentric old man, and nice, tall, he only had one tooth. And he wouldn't give that tooth up, it worked back and forth in his mouth, you know, and he had a pet squirrel, always rode on his shoulder, or up in the top, he'd come into the dining room, he'd lay his hat on the corner of the table, that squirrel, right that hat, sitting on that hat. Lakeport Shipping picked up a lucrative contract with Ford Motor Company, hauling steel bars to Otis Steel in Cleveland to be rolled into sheet metal for cars. 15,000 tons of steel from Hirschfield and Bay City brought the whale back up the Saginaw River, where its 55-inch magnets grabbed a ton of steel with each lift. The cranes were capable of 100 tons of steel per hour, and 35 rail cars awaited the court on its first visit. Oh, the chief ran the cranes, Augie Brits. He was quite a green man. I've seen him swing that goddamn magnet over the magnet with probably a ton. Swing it in there and he'd give her a couple of let her go and pretty soon he uh, had trouble keeping brakes on the blast because he used, had to use the brakes watch. He was quite a man with it. He'd put it right where he wanted to put it. On August 30th, 1928, the court again ripped her bottom on the familiar Colchester Reef, and the whaleback was snagged until Great Lakes towing could pull them off. In the fall of 1929, the court ran into the steamer Sandmaster at Detroit, sending the Sandmaster to the River Rouge Yard for repairs. Court continued to make headlines as an icebreaker as well, opening up the Sioux Locks and even the treacherous Whitefish Bay when seven inches of ice blocked others from moving. The whaleback was the first out each spring and the last vessel moving each winter. I was through the honor twice when she was the first boat through the straits breaking the ice. Because if you read this uh, in the history of the boat, she was weighted and, and she had been she had quite a nose on her. And we'd, uh, we'd break ice all day long, and come night, we'd shut her down. It was quite a record to be the first, first ship through the, through the mm -hmm. uh, straits. But we were the first ship through that. That one especially, we wouldn't make too much time during the day, but I didn't want to see any more ice for a while. Tragedy struck the whale back during a visit to Milwaukee in June of 1932. A 32-year-old coal passer on the whaleback fell off a ladder while boarding the ship at United Coal and Dock. Tony Pulser fell backward from the seventh rung and hit his head on the concrete dock before falling into the river. 
His brother Peter was a new second mate on the court, who was pictured later that winter with Captain Charlie Cox and Chief Engineer August Augie Britz after they battled a sub-zero gale on Lake Michigan. That winter layover was barely three weeks long, as the court set what the Lake Carriers Association thought was a new record season opening in 1933. Bridge construction on the New York Central span had to be hurried, and 18 bridge tenders returned to their post months earlier than expected as the court traveled up the Cuyahoga River to Corrigan McKinley Steel. Warmer weather may have made the trip ice-free, but many complained that the bridge tender's overtime alone didn't warrant the court's visit. Second mate Peter Pulser moved up to first mate that next season, and in 1934 he told reporters it was tough after the loss of his brother. Quote, We had a lot of tough luck in the five years I was on the boat. Last Christmas we tore out eight plates on Ballard Reef in Livingstone Channel. The boat was filling with water when we pulled into River Rouge, and we hadn't left her long before she went to the bottom. That was another big repair job for the company." Close quote. day before Christmas, there were, there were no buoys out or anything to guide by, so we came across Lake Erie at night. And in the morning, just before daylight, we hit Ballard to reef. I don't even remember what happened. I didn't, it was a bump all right, but then as far as that's concerned, it didn't uh, throw things around. With a dozen plates in her hull damaged, Captain Cox figured he might as well run for the dock, and the engineers started pumping water as they made a desperate push for Detroit. Yeah, she started taking water. So the full speed ahead, speed limits and be darned. And when we got up to uh, the dock where we went into, he turned her in full speed ahead, right into the, and got her as close to the dock as possible. They were putting wet coal in, and, and uh, the fellows were working in, in water. I don't know how deep was that up to the knees, I imagine. It took 12 plates to fix it. Newspapers said the court sank five minutes after tying up in the Detroit River, and divers were dispatched to repair the broken plates. Fred spent the holiday aboard the court, as he was one of the few officers that wasn't married. Nearly all of the other crew were from South Michigan, and they were able to spend Christmas at home. Court was getting bad press that summer as well, when a fishing boat refused to move as they entered Muskegon Harbor. Pulser said, quote, Three men were fishing in our course. We signaled to them, but they paid no attention. Their boat kept drifting more and more in our way. We steered aside and tried to stop in time, but it was too late. Two of the men drowned, and our men saved the third. Ragnar Baglian and Oscar Nyberg were killed in the accident, with Eric Dahlberg as the only survivor. Government inspectors held an inquiry, and Cox and Pulser were cleared of any wrongdoing. That season continued to be difficult for the court, as it found a November gale while heading across Lake Superior. One time on, on Lake Superior, we broke our back. Fred remembers the court had just cleared the Sioux locks when the storm hit, and Captain Cox put them at anchor for two days at Whitefish Point. The gale still hadn't blown itself completely out when Cox decided to head out. Well, we laid behind Whitefish Point, and we thought the storm was over, and the boats were starting to pull out, so we pulled out. We got around Chris Point and snapped, just, just ahead of the after cabin. And we were in Duluth then, and getting it repaired, we snuck around the back ways until we got there. One thing about it, she could go almost any depth of water. You could lighten her up and she'd float. 
The season of misfortune would reach its apex during a trip down Lake Michigan on the last days of November. Captain Cox recalled the trip in a newsreel filmed in 1934. We were en route from Holland, Michigan to South Chicago, Illinois for a load of pig iron for the Holland Furnace Company. From 35 miles off Chicago, we were struck by a sou'wester which turned us around regardless of the engine. And we tried several times to bring her back up into the wind, but she wouldn't go. And we decided to run back with the wind to the east shore, which was the only place we could go. Engineer Kirk Bride adds a few more details in this conversation taped with historian Gareth McNabb in 1982. Yeah, we were downbound from Muskegon to Chicago. We could see Chicago. Charlie Cox, the skipper, and I had dinner together because I had the first watch, naturally, six on and six off, and that was... Uh, we had dinner together. We were sitting at the dining table and looking out over across the water, and the little funnels were coming up out of the lake. He said, but we're going to have a storm. And I said, Charlie, it looks like it to me. The captain later said it was a 60-mile gale that was brewing from the south, and the whaleback was bobbing around without cargo. So the captain went back to work above the dining area. Oh, yeah, we had, a, we had our dinner, and he went to up to the parlor house, and I went to try to get some sleep. The next thing I knew, she was pitching. The next thing I knew, she had turned around. We could see Chicago. We were headed for Chicago for what, I don't remember what we were going to pick up or anything like that town. And the next thing I knew, she was almost laying on her side. She was trying to turn her around to head her back into Chicago. He didn't want to be that close because he knew it would be a heck of a blow and he wanted to get into cover. About 35 miles off Chicago, we were driven back by a heavy sou'wester, <clears throat> which turned us around against our rudder with full speed ahead. We tried twice to come back up into it, but she wouldn't take the wheel. So we decided the only thing to do was let her go for the shore or try to make Muskegon Harbor. The wind turned us around and he tried to turn her back and almost capsized her. He scraped her up and tried to haul her out as much as we could from the, the Michigan shore because he said he could not clear Point Betsy and because he kept, the wind kept blowing us over all the time. So uh, got up to that there and he says, well, boys, I'm going to ask, we're going into Muskegon. We got to, we can't tear point Betsy and if we get pile up there because the water is shallow. We tried to hold to the northern to, to get by the Sabos, but the wind drove us several miles off our course. So we decided to try to make Muskegon Harbor. And getting near Muskegon Harbor, the sea seemed to go down and we steered in on the ranges for about period, about five miles. Well, I was in the engine room. I couldn't see much action. You can't tell how much what happened. I know she was rolling and pitching to beat the Dickens. And as we got near Muskegon Harbor, the wind shifted in our favor and was more to the southwest. And <clears throat> we decided to make try to make the harbor rather than try to beat her as we figured, as I had figured that we would lose probably most of our crew doing so. So we headed her for the harbor. 
in order to hold her toward that course at all of steering, uh, well, the, your, your rudder didn't seem to have any control of it whatsoever. And the steering engine just roaring back and forth. I was probably just spinning that wheel up there. You could tell the way the, the engines were. See, that was all power driven, your rudder. Several levels below the pilot house, the only way the engine room could get orders from the captain were through the telegrapher Chadburn and the metal speaking tube that looked like a snorkel. The intercom was a piece of pipe, you know, with a little thumb on it. And you had to watch your wheel when she'd kick out of the water. You had to get the pressure shut off so she wouldn't throw a bucket. You had to reduce your steam and watch your vacuum. You didn't dare lose that. We had lost buckets before, and I think we didn't want to lose any buckets right then. It was important to have full propulsion as they tried to thread the north and south break walls at Muskegon. I, I had the problem when she hit. We had to have all the speed and get her straightened up as possible. And we had the throttles were wide open, the bypass were open, she was getting all the steam we had. But the boys kept ahead of steam on her all right. You never saw any water in the water glass very often because it was doing this, but it didn't much make much difference then. But uh, full speed ahead. There was no slow about it. Everything you got, but to get her to her. All you did was pull the throttle down and reach up and turn the big valve and try to regulate it with the throttle. The screaming winds and confused waves were only part of the problem. Fred says the wheelsman was also unqualified for such a maneuver, wishing that their regular mate, Peter Pulzer, had the wheel instead. Here on the wheel, we had a lot better chance of making it. He was a wheelsman, and he understood how two and two made four. Pulzer was in Detroit tending to a sick wife when the court attempted to save itself by running full speed between the brake walls. And as we were coming through the piers, the sea caught us on our starboard side and landed us over onto the north breakwater, smashing a hole in her side and she hung to the wall and wouldn't go inside. So we backed her and landed alongside of the breakwater where she filled with water and sank in five minutes. Well, when she hit, then we all went on in a hurry, fast as we get to everything secure as much as possible. If she blew up, she'd blow, but she didn't blow up. And goodness. Yeah, we, uh, <clears throat> that was up to Providence, whatever you want to call it, whatever way she went. We did the best we could. We had steam. We never ran out of steam. She was taking water. The water wasn't going to hurt us any to give us ballast. But she just couldn't hold her up there. I made the wrong decision with the seas and everything else. They say a backwash. Of course, Charlie, in that statement he had there in the paper, which was the truth to a point, but it was for protection as well, insurance protection. Fred says the crew kept their wits in the crash. They didn't get hysterical. That was one consolation. Looking around the engine room, Fred Kirkbride said the first engineer was frozen, gripping a rail. Chief Engineer Britz was in worse shape. He was just scared to death right out of his pants. I think he was praying because he had signed before entering. In the galley, steward Harry Sutton had been thrown hard to the floor. One newspaper said he had broken his pelvis. All I know is one hell of a crash on the head. Then she swung around and she crashed again when the side hit him. 
nose hit, and then she hit the sides. That's what held us. In the black of night, 9.40 p.m. November 30th, now impaled on the rocks, the crew of the court were trapped, too far from shore to swim and in waves too big to launch a lifeboat. Oh, poor old Jack. The little fellow, he was scared to death. And he got a hold of my belt, I can see him yet. Hold of my belt. He never left my back all night long. Fred's companion in the darkness was an oiler who worked with him during his six-hour shifts. They were now watching the walls of the dining room moving back and forth in the storm. Jack Myers, my oiler, and I were in the, in the dining room, which was right next to the galley. And there was all this wainscoting and a calendar hanging on a, on, a, on a peg here. That was the only way I had of telling how far she was going one way or how far she was going the other. Every three or four minutes, she'd slide over one way then she'd gradually start and come back again. You didn't know whether that was going to be the last time she'd come back or what. But that was what my indicator was. With no idea how deep the water was off the break wall, the crew worried they'd be washed off the rocks and swamped in the waves. Yeah, she did. We were all done right then. We never could have gotten out because we were I was right by the door going out on deck from the dining room. And of course, the fellows in the, in, the, in the galley, they were right there by the door to get out through the galley door. It was on the roof. And that was the side we would have to go up with, the left-hand side, because she was going to roll over to the right. Yeah, she went anywhere. She couldn't go to the left. If she did, why, it would be on dry land. You had no idea of how in the world you were ever going to get ashore. If there was any consolation, it was that the shipwreck happened just a day after Thanksgiving. Captain Cox said they ate turkey and mince pie while the Coast Guard pushed their underpowered surfboat into the crashing waves. The lifeboat had one of the tiniest outboards in the service, 40 horse instead of 90 that most other stations had. But four men jumped in just minutes after the shipwreck and tied themselves to the boat. Bozen mate Charles Bonteco circled the cord and was making another approach when a wave washed two surfmen overboard. Roger Stearman managed to cling to the side of the boat but Jack Dipert vanished in the blinding spray. Overwhelmed in the storm, the surfboat crashed ashore, spilling the survivors into the water. The cutter Escanaba pulled alongside the wreck at 2 a.m. and lit it with a million candle power searchlight. Dipert was nowhere to be found, but the crew of the court answered by flashing their lights, and the cutter moved off to a safe location on the other side of the break wall. By daybreak, a new plan was in place to scale the breakwater and toss a line to the court. Sutton was the most injured and was the first to leave the ship. Uh, they all went down from the ship to the riprap uh, in a bolson chair, everybody. First mate Harvey Matthews was next over the side, staying near the ship to help 23 other men off to the rocks that were being battered by the waves. Rescuers tied a line around the men and slowly walked them in groups to safety some 3,000 feet down a treacherous break wall. That's why we fastened them all together so one or two couldn't got weak or lost their mind and, and, uh, and couldn't hang on to the riprap. That's why they were fastened together. That's why and when, you, when, you, when that big sea was coming in, why you'd look for a piece of riprap, you had one spotted, don't worry, but you didn't go no five or no fifty or hundred feet between seas. You just very, very slowly, rock by rock by rock. 
The cook would be rushed to nearby Hackley Hospital, where he'd be joined by four others, not crewmen, but four gawkers who were part of the 50,000 people who raced to the beach to get a look at the wreck. Three-mile traffic jams were reported and several accidents were the result. The remaining crew were transported to the civilian conservation camp to recuperate. And the commanding officer, Captain Palmer of the CCC camp. The uh, Coast Guard deserve full credit for the taking the crew off this boat. The 676 Company CCC were glad to do what they could to help. The call came in here at 10.30 on the night of the accident. Simply said that a boat was down. We turned out the company and went down, patrolled the beach for three hours. Fred only recovered a single suitcase of clothing. The assistant engineer lost everything he owned in the engine room. I never got my eyes. Hundreds of dollars worth of tools in the bottom of Lake Michigan. My license and everything else is in the bottom of Lake Michigan. Captain Cox gave reporters a written account of what happened, and he talked to newsreel cameras at the scene. I'm glad that all the members of the crew are safe and, and uh, nobody was hurt in any way. Sorry that the, the accident of the Coast Guards, losing their man. And I think we've done the only thing that possibly could have done to save the lives of the crew. And thanks to the assistance of the CC camps and the efficient work of the Coast Guards. Obviously upset over the questions by reporters and the fact that he'd been sunk three times by the whaleback, Augie Britz was brief in his statement about saving the court. As I remember it being said very plainly to hell with her. Fred Kirkbride was done sailing as well. well. I had a good job in machine repair and then I went in safety in Detroit. That was my last trip. Lakeport no longer had a ship, so Captain Cox signed on with Gravel Motorship, sailing under Captain James Larson aboard the 250-foot Ormondale. Eleven months after the court sank, Cox found himself in thick fog on northern Lake Huron. Captain Larson went below to get some sleep and ordered Cox to maintain course near Alpena. On November 1st, the Ormadale slammed into the side of a Norwegian freighter, Viator, mortally wounding the ship. The Norwegian crew scrambled aboard the Ormadale and the Viator slipped beneath the waves. Captain Cox was investigated for the accident and his license was suspended for 90 days. The shipwreck of the court was quickly destroyed by Lake Michigan, ripping its bow off in weeks and slipping beneath the waves soon afterwards. Lakeport Navigation managed to salvage one of the cranes from the deck before the hull rolled over and was crushed, and the remaining crane, anchors, and superstructure were removed by the Army Corps of Engineers on July 8, 1935. The barge Kenosha brought 100 tons of plate steel ashore, and the forward crane base was sold to Love Construction in Muskegon for $50. Today, 6,000 tons of rock that repaired the north break wall have crushed the wreck even further, with only scattered plates and a boiler visible. The aft crane mount, essentially a 10-foot diameter gear, is also recognizable, as are the aft mooring rings, the famous pig snout of the whaleback which welcomes divers who still visit the court today. 
This Shipwreck podcast featured interviews with engineer Fred Kirkbride from Imlay City, Michigan, who passed away in September of 1984. We also heard from Captain Charles V. Cox, who later sailed for Columbia as captain of the William Stiefel and W.C. Richardson until retiring in 1965. Captain Cox passed away November 3, 1965, and was buried in Carsonville, Michigan. First mate Peter Pulser, who missed the sinking of the court by a week, would return as mate on Columbia's crane ship, G.G. Post. In 1945, he became a captain on the Harry Ewig and moved up the line to the Richardson, Buckeye, and in 1965 became the captain on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Pulser retired from the Fitz in 1971, five years before it was tragically lost on Lake Superior. For Shipwreck Podcast, I'm Rick Mixter. Audio interviews from this podcast are copyright Airworthy Productions 2020 and may not be rebroadcast or copied without written authorization. This podcast would not have been possible without the amazing research of Gareth McNabb and Neil Zoss. Dan and Heather Bloom of West Michigan Dive Center provided boat transportation to the court, and we gratefully acknowledge the research of Ken Throw. For more shipwreck stories and books and videos, please visit my website at lakefury.com. You'll also find more free podcasts to listen to at shipwreckpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.